I'm looking at this Wordle board right now for today, and I just missed my third guess, and it feels like I've already lost. Getting four just doesn't feel like a win anymore. It's really sad. I'm with you on this. Every day, my goal is to get three. I'd like to get my three total, double my five total. And currently, I am at 76 threes and 44 fives. So I need 12 more threes to get to 88 threes. And then that would double up my fives of 44. I've been on a hot streak. I'm telling you, getting four is disappointing, Maze. I really hate the ones where you get to a point where it's either one or two letters, especially the one letter where there's like five words that you could still make. I get frustrated because the proper strategy is to like throw a bunch of them into a word yeah. and waste a turn. That's only if you're playing on easy mode, Jordan. Easy mode. You can't do that on hard mode. Huh? You don't know about hard mode? There's a hard mode, Jordan. No, what happens in hard mode? You have to use the greens and yellows. Oh, you can't discard them. You can't just burn a turn. See, well, I have trouble doing that anyway because I get so frustrated. I'm like, no, I need to get this. I need to guess this one in as few turns as possible. I'm not sacrificing a turn, I'm not wasting a turn but inevitably I'll guess wrong. I am boggled by this because I use Wordle. No, that's a different game, Peter. Uh, <laughs> Are you scrabbled as well? I'm scrambled because I use Wordle the same way that I use internet chess, which is not to extend my competitiveness, not to keep score, not even to, to get the brain off of analytics, just use letters and words in a fun, relaxing way. Usually, sometimes right before I go to sleep, I can't extend the strategizing part of my brain and my life to a word game. Good Lord. But it is math. Sure, but I don't need <laughs> to know the percentage of the edge that I am losing by beginning with the word space instead of the word adieu, <laughs> you know? <laughs> this is the biggest underdog upset that we've had on this show is that Peter Keating uses Wordle to turn off his brain. Yes, yes. If Danny Sheridan came to me and started screaming at me about which road words, which words were overlooking sandwich games, I, I, I really, I just, I can't, I couldn't handle it. The bowl is full, gentlemen, to the brim. My starting word is crack. Hate to shoot, haul, the runner! Loose ball! It's good! With 4.4 to go! Shannon! Don't want to foul! Shannon! From the corner! And it's over! Gonzaga! The flipper still fits! The cry goes up both far and near for underdog! 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 Joe Namath, number 12, has been the one big sideline. He's come down here and he says the Jets are going to win. In fact, he doesn't even predict it. He says, I guarantee a Jet victory. Oh my kid, I even in the guys league. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. Underdog! Underdog! They're bigger, faster, stronger, more experienced. And on paper, they're just better. Oh my goodness! The longest shot has won the Kentucky Derby! Red strike and a stunning, unbelievable upset! Shock and awe in college basketball! Underdog! Underdog! I expect you boys to go out there and not take this team lightly because I promise you, they're going to come at you with everything they've got. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to self. Five seconds left in the game. You believe in miracles? Yes! By George, the dream is alive. Speed of lightning, roar of thunder, fighting all who rob or plunder. Underdog, underdog, underdog. Well, then I guess there's only one thing left to do. Win the whole fucking thing. Welcome to Underdogs. We're back with another jam-packed show. We're going to look at the myth of momentum as we head down the stretch of the baseball season toward the playoffs. You hear a lot about teams that are hot, that are cold, that are playing well, that aren't. Does that matter at all in October? We've got the answer. And we got a few thoughts on a little show called The Bachelorette. But first, guys, second straight crazy week in the National Football League. What do we make of this? Crazy comebacks, 
more upsets. Survival pools are down to 25% of their entrance. What the hell is going on? This is Underdog Central. It's time to figure out which of these dogs are for real, right? I mean, I think it means week three is really important because, like, you can regress to the mean, but sometimes you're just so bad that you're you're just going to – the bottom's falling out, which is why you're not bouncing back. So we saw some – we saw some crazy wins. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm trying not to be a homer and be local and point out that I picked the Jets, but that that last couple of minutes of that Jets game was one of the most insane things I've ever seen. With the comeback scores sandwiched around and a successful onside kick by by the punter, right? Not by Greg Zerline, who is kind of known for being able to squib the ball all kinds of different ways. So I thought that's what we were going to see. It was it was nuts. Did you think that was the the craziest game of all on the schedule. I mean, what about the Cardinals Raiders game? Yeah. That was beyond insane. Chris Cody said the Dolphins win was the greatest game he's ever seen. The greatest Dolphins win he's ever seen. The Dolphins game. Yeah. Is it just that there's not a lot of difference between most of the teams in the league? Is this like the Danny Sheridan in game theory that human nature takes over and you start playing harder when your back's against the wall? What the hell is happening? It's sort of it's totally possible that Danny is right about everything. I think Danny Sheridan bats a thousand on these theories. I would never fade Danny Danny's picks. Well, I think his theory about bounce backs and underdogs and emotions led us straight into liking Tennessee, who did not have any kind of comeback in them and who I now think, you know, looks like they can go oh and seventeen for all I care, by the way. I mean, so maybe Maybe, maybe not. That that was supposed to be the Danny Sheridan theory pick. Now, I'm not saying he picked them, although I think he did praise us for isolating them as the pick among the big underdogs that his thoughts would lead to. So I love Danny. feel like he uh, led me straight into a buzzsaw with the Titans, I have to say. We had a pretty good week on our, on our underdog picks, though, right? Other than I had to take the Bears, which I, I just hated, but you know, there wasn't much left on the board. Maze, do you have the standings here? This is just my way of not tooting my own horn. Yeah. Tom wanted to let everybody know that he's got five points on the season because mm-hmm. he hit both of his picks last week. That's right. The Jags straight up embarrassed the Colts, winning by 24. So he got two points for that. Yep. And then the Texans covered, only lost by seven to the Broncos. So he got one point for that. Peter picked the Titans, who got smoked by the Bills on Monday night by 34 points. <laughs> and then he followed that up by picking the Jets, who... Came back and one by one, so he got two points. He's on the board. Jordan picked the Bears to cover against the Packers. They lost by 17 because there was no monsoon this week. And then he picked the Cardinals, who somehow beat the Raiders in an absolutely crazy game by six points, and he got two points for that. So Tom has five, Jordan has four, Peter has two, and we're heading into week three. Love it. Yeah, you said there was no monsoon with the Bears game. I would also say there was no moon. There certainly has not. It is a new moon. Darnell Mooney finished with minus four yards <laughs> receiving in week two, which means that, Peter, you had more receiving yards than Darnell Mooney on Sunday. Peter's quicker, too. That's my ticket to fame. That's going on the business cards, going on the resume. We need a name for that. Should it just be a Mooney? If you get negative receiving yards, is that is that what we call it now? It's the full Mooney. The full Mooney. Negative receiving yards total. This isn't he just caught one behind the line on a screen and ran backwards, whatever. This is he finished the entire game. So I can't even use that excuse. My keeper pick from this from this last season on my team, I was like, Darnell Mooney, let's go. Christian Kirk, you can get, get out of here. I'm fine with, with saying no to Christian Kirk, and I'll go with Darnell Mooney. And now it's just – it's an embarrassing Richmond of losses. Uh, embarrassing Richmond of losses is what I just said. That's the full moon. Let's in- just move on, okay? That's the full moon in Virginia, I think, is the Richmond of losses. Yes. Wait, huh? What's that? Do you guys hear that? No, no, not now. That's Vet the Bet. Let's go. That's right. Welcome to another edition of Vet the Bet. 
This is the hottest new game show on the internet, where I, your host, Tom Haverster, research the history of a particular bet, and I quiz our esteemed panel of contestants, that's Jordan Brenner and Peter Keating, about the findings. Are you ready, Peter and Jordan, to play Vet the Bet? No. Haven't we embarrassed me enough? Does this have to keep going on week after week? Vet it, baby. Let the vetting begin. Let's vet the bet. There are four teams who are currently 0-2 in the win-loss column and 0-2 against the spread. Those poor four teams are the Tennessee Titans, right, Peter? Las Vegas Raiders, the Cincinnati Bengals, and the Carolina Panthers. So, in the last 10 seasons in the NFL, there have been 63 times in which a team has played in September after a two-game losing streak on both the money line and against the spread. What is their win percentage against the spread coming off that two-plus game losing streak in September? So I want you to right now submit your answers in a direct message to me, and the closest answer will win. Peter has clocked in with his answer. Final answer, Peter has guessed for his against the spread win percentage of those lovable losers, disappointing losers, I guess I should say, 50.5%. Right. And I hope that you will appreciate that it's not just 500 because we're talking about an odd number of teams. <laughs> he doesn't even think it's 50%. He's just trying to beat me with strategic, <laughs> oh move, like $1. No, no. And, yeah. I do think it's 50% because week three, just like the third year for a quarterback is crucial because your third opportunity to evaluate somebody or something is your chance to see whether the arrow went down and down and is just going to fall through the floor, like I began this show saying, or whether they're a little bit better than they look and there's some bounce back potential. And against the spread, I think probably it's about half and half. So it's half and half adjusted for the odd for the odd. Number. Okay. All right. J- Jordan, do you have any reasoning at all or did you are you just Well, just wait. Are you just throwing darts during Bet the Bet these I'm being days? attacked here, Tom. As the host, you need to have control over your your contestants. All right. <laughs> 57% is Jordan's guess. Wow, that's bold. That's bold. The answer 60.3%. Oh! Jordan how does it feel? You know, I'd like to thank Mays for for putting this together and Tom for hosting the show. Um, my family really, you know, stuck with me through down times. Yeah. It's good. It feels good. You came in with a very close to the correct answer, but both of you came in a little lower than the, the truth. So if you wagered $100 on those two game losing streaks in both categories in September, early in the season, if you wagered $100 on them to cover the spread in each of those games, you'd have... $955 in profit in your pocket. If you pick those teams, those 0-2 teams, if you pick them straight up, you'd go 30, 32, and 1 with $1,562 in your pocket. So these guys, like the Titans, the Panthers, the Bengals. The Bengals and the Raiders. And the Raiders are 0-2 in both categories. And if you had bet those te- those those teams over the last 10 years, those types of teams over the last 10 years, you'd have like $2,500 in your pocket. And over the last five seasons, what's interesting is the bet has even been more successful. In 27 games, they've won 70% against the spread and 13-13 and 13 on the money line for a whopping total of $1,400 of winnings if you bet them. And in the... Worst case scenario, two game losing streak on both the money line and the against the spread on both bets. September playing on the road. So in this week, that would be the Bengals at the Jets and then the Raiders at fellow poor four member, the Titans. Okay, on the road in both categories playing September over. They are actually better than the overall record. So like this is kind of big. I feel like we should. I don't know, Jordan, I guess you can bet on this. I like this. Well, wait. Well, here's my question. Do you think that message is sinking in with the public at all? Because of the four 0-2 teams, not many of them are deep underdogs this weekend. Bengals are favorites. Yeah. Pretty significant favorites. So, I mean, in our in our underdog picking where we're looking for dogs who are deeper than three points, right? I don't think you can bet any of those four teams, can you? So the Bengals are five-point favorites at the Jets. 
the Raiders are two-point favorites in Tennessee. And it's rare to have these September losers not be underdogs, right? Right. But you'd fare better picking those favorites. September overdogs, Peter. September overdogs coming off of two-game losing streaks on both the money line and the spread. Over the last 10 seasons, there's only 25 instances of this that we're seeing with the Bengals and the Raiders where they're favorites, even though they're 0-2 on both categories. Those teams, the September overdogs, 0-2 records, are 14 and nine against the spread. Wow. So that there really is that that seems to be a signal, right? And they've covered seven of the last nine times this scenario popped up. So even if they are the favorite, there might be a little bit of edge there that we're not quite quantifying in the spread. I mean, this seems to speak to, again, some of the stuff we talked about with Danny Sheridan last week about teams bouncing back, about teams never being as good as they look when they're up and not being as bad as they look when they're down the human nature aspect to this. Um, it makes sense to me. It's why I, I thought that it would, it would be a profitable, um, and I think 57% is not too far off from from 60%. So I like this. I was already thinking about this, you know, as we make our picks for this week. Uh, I also wonder if there's, maybe you can research this for next time, Tom, what we can say about teams that start fast. And maybe is it a mirage? And I'm 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 thinking, of course, in particular, about a team that's near and dear to our hearts, the the New York Football Giants. Yes, who are two and zero. It has been incredibly fun to watch as a fan. It's the first time I wake up feeling some sort of optimism about them in ages. But I'm also realistic enough to say they're not that good right now. They're, the the margin is very thin. They needed you know a two point conversion and a missed field goal to get by in Tennessee. That that Carolina game could have gone any number of ways, any number of times. They won by a field goal. But I've had this theory, guys for a long time in football, which is this, that in some cases, you know, you, you would think a team improves and then wins. Sometimes I think a team wins and then gets good. What do I mean by that? I mean that a team may not be that talented, may not be that good a team, but they get a couple fortunate breaks, they get an easy schedule, and suddenly they're looking at a 3 and 0 record and that actually helps them become a better team because they're playing with more confidence they believe in the system they believe in the coach the quarterback's making better decisions and so forth so while it may not make them run faster or may not be able to make them block harder i do think that the little things that are important in football may crystallize around winning so i wonder if the giants getting off to this fast start they're home against the cowboys on a monday night with cooper rush They've got an incredibly easy schedule going forward. We may look at the Giants later in the season and be like, you know what? They are a good team now. And was it the result of early success? Does this make any sense, guys, or am I talking out of my ass? Well, usually you are. but <laughs> Turns out that that's not mutually exclusive, Jordan. So you're saying my ass makes a lot of sense? Well, when you make sense, maybe it's generally your ass making the sense. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying about that. Let me say this. I, you're right. It doesn't make winning doesn't necessarily make people block better or run faster, but winning does create an environment where it's probably easier to make good in-season changes, right? And that also involves health. I mean, the Giants still have a considerable number of injuries, particularly on the defensive line, right? Which needs to be functioning well and better for them to be any good because we still just don't know about the quarterback going to be able to keep anything going for the season. I mean, but, you know, they need Ojolari and Thibodeau um, back and healthy. And if you can win a couple of games and bank those while you're getting healthy, maybe they will be better in four or six. They should be, right? They should be better in four to six weeks than they are now. So much of analytics focuses on evaluating talent and figuring out who has the best rosters at the beginning of the season, evaluating off-season moves. I think the and then so much of the in-season is random um, that we probably don't do as good a job in general as we might figure out who's going to get better as opposed to just revealing themselves for what they were already at, right? Who's going to actually get better over the season? I think, you know, two wins, right, against soft opposition, sure. I mean, the Giants have the 24th best simple rating system method in the league, and they're 2-0. and So, have they been lucky? Obviously. Um, but but it's sure better to be 2-0 and o looking forward to making changes that are going to make you better than it is to be 1-1 one and one or 0-2. Oh Listen to their upcoming schedule for a second, okay? Home against the Cowboys with no deck. Home against the Bears. At the Packers with no wide receivers. 
home against the Ravens. That's a tough one. At the Jaguars, at the Seahawks, home against the Texans, home against the Lions. None of those eight games is impossible to win. You could be a mediocre team and get through that five and three, right? Yeah. What was our hopeful scenario for them this season a month ago? Winning seven games or eight games? Well, someone here bet the over on six and a half wins, so feeling pretty good about that. So maybe that's eight or nine wins. That would be a pretty successful season, right? Of course, Jordan, if they're if they're a little bit better, so they're improved at the margins and their health improves, but their luck, you know, evens out. Wh- where does that put them? Eight or nine wins, which is just are, are they improving to the point where they're just going to be just good enough to not get a really good quarterback in next year's draft? That's the long range question for me. Yeah, they're not going to get a good enough pick for a really good quarterback, but I I believe in Daniel Jones. I'll see I'll see if Brian Dayball does, but I I do not think he is or has been the problem. If this line can block finally and they actually, you know, decide on which receivers are going to play, he's going to have a good season. We need a Casey Joyner metric for percentage of throws that nobody understands unless the quarterback was trying to throw to the opposing team. And I'm pretty sure that when we devise that metric, Daniel Jones will be the runaway leader. So um, I'm, I hope that with better blocking, I hope better blocking's coming, and I hope with better blocking he stops throwing passes that look like he was throwing to the opponent, but I, I don't know how you can be confident in that. <laughs> oh, no. Do you hear that? Uh-oh. That's right. We have another round of Vet the Bet real quick. Oh, no. Let's go! The Giants being 2-0 on the money line and against the spread, coming in as the slight favorite here against the Cowboys on Monday night. Jordan, you asked for it. Here you're going to get it. Since 2012, there have been 53 teams who are the favorite coming off of a two-game win streak in September on the money line and against the spread, a la the New York Giants. What is their win percentage against the spread in those games coming off that hot streak as the favorite? So it's the flip side of what we were talking about earlier. All right. Jordan has come in. 45% is his guess. Jordan Brenner, 45%. Peter Keating is coming in at 39.5. Wow. Okay. 39.5. The answer is 41.5. Oh! Peter Keating is the winner on this one. He avenges his loss earlier in the episode. Yeah, 22 and 31. The Giants. That's not looking good for your New York Giants coming up on Monday night. But that's interesting. So ride the losing teams and fade the super hot teams that have been overachieving early at this stage. Are there any other sort of besides the Giants early season underdogs who caught your eye that are better than you thought they were going to be or or look like they're going to be a surprise team for the rest of the season? Well, yeah. I mean, the Dolphins, right? The Dolphins with that ridiculous performance there. If you started Tua and Waddle and Tyreek Hill you would have won your fantasy. I mean, they all had 40 points in that game. It's insane. So like, are the Dolphins legit? That offense looks great. I think the Eagles look better than I thought they would too. Yeah. They look scary. They look terrific. I hate to say it. Yeah, I I, I do too. At the extent to which (laughs) Cousins literally couldn't throw the ball, just didn't have any time. Their defense looks scary. And yeah, they just look scary overall. I mean... They're going to run away with that division, don't you think? I hate to say that, but... Well, not according to Jordan. That's right. Giants are going to run away with it. Yeah, the runaway train. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. Maybe you think the Celtics aren't so great. Maybe you think minus 200 is not a fair price for them to win the East. Maybe you're looking at an underdog in the West, like Dallas or Minnesota. Either way, hop on the DK Sportsbook app. And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code LAF. 
That's code LAF for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just five bucks. Only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, 21 plus, age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. All right, well, let's do our weekly underdogs here. Why don't we start things off with Peter Keating. Congratulations, coming off the win and vet the bet. Recovering after a devastating defeat at the hand of Jordan Brenner. <laughs> now you have the first pick, and I'm going to go through here. Actually, Jordan, you have it in front of you, probably. The teams that are available to be picked in our weekly dog draft. All right, here are our options this week. You've got the Pittsburgh Steelers getting four and a half points at Cleveland on Thursday night. The Colts getting six and a half points at home against Kansas City. The Dolphins, who we talked about, getting five and a half at home against the Bills. The Jets getting five at home against the Bengals. The Commanders getting six and a half at home against the Eagles. The Lions getting six at Minnesota. The Jaguars getting seven at the Chargers. And the Cardinals getting three and a half at home against the Rams. All the other games have a spread of three or fewer points, so they are off our board. It is a sorry lot of choices, too. It really is. It really is. And the teams that are... Recent discussions and that analytics would lead you to like are almost all off the board because the margins are too close, right? I believe I have the first pick this week, right? You do. And you have thoroughly explained why Cincinnati, who is favored, coming off being uh, 0-2 overall and against the spread, is a strong bounce-back candidate, right? We, we went into that in considerable detail. But here's one thing we didn't talk about. Maybe the most consistent way you can make money on underdogs is to fade the public. Over the last five years, teams that had a majority of money bet on them, or majority of the public bets as underdogs, were 11, 18, and 1 against the spread. If you have 60% 60 or more of public money bet, were 2, 10, and 1 against the spread. So basically popular underdog picks. Right. The Jets have the lowest share of bets placed on them <laughs> of any team in the NFL this week. That's my favorite Jets stat. Yes. Okay. There's a lot of them, but that's pretty good. A New York market has the fewest amount of bets placed on that team. Yeah. Now, you know that odds makers are trying to get the money 50-50, but despite shifts in the spread, the Jets at plus five have just 12% bet on them. Now look, Cincinnati eked out a win. They got Miami next week at home. The Jets are at home. Their defense is legit. Their receivers are terrific. That was an insane ending last week, but they oper they've operated really well on defense and really efficiently last week on offense. You know, they need a tight end who won't fumble the ball every time he touches it, but that's that's kind of a quibble at this point with a spread of five points at home against a team that has stumbled around a lot so far this season. So again, yes, it makes sense that Cincinnati should be a bounce-back candidate, but um, for the second week in a row, I find myself, for reasons of betting lines and the selections that we're trapped into, and also a grudging admiration for the, what the Jets have been able to put together, to go with the New York Jets against Cincinnati. Well, with my first pick, and I agree that it's a struggle to find really good underdogs this week and really good lines, I'm going to stick with an underdog that I've liked since April when I put money on their uh, their chance to win the division and, and their over total on wins. I'm going with the Detroit Lions mm. at Minnesota getting six points. I wish it were seven. It's not. But I hope I'm not over-indexing for what we saw out of Minnesota against the Eagles. But it's a division matchup. These teams play some strange games over their history, I think the Lions are looking good, particularly on offense. I could see this being sort of a high-scoring back-and-forth game. Uh, the over-under right now is 52-and-a-half. Uh, and I, I think the Lions, even if it's a backdoor cover late, 
can do enough to keep this this thing close enough. Maybe even eke out a win. You know, you just you just don't know with Kirk Cousins. So I'm gonna go with Amon Ross St. Brown and the Detroit Lions getting six. Well, after we saw the Eagles last week, what the Lions did against them looks a little more impressive, doesn't it? And it was impressive at the time. So that's a cool pick, I think. Thank you, Peter. We just continue to love the Lions, right? They're you know they're an easy team to root for, and it makes sense. And the uh, the betting line hasn't caught up with them yet. Yeah, why not? And you're right about Kirk Cousins. Who who <laughs> who can depend on him? I don't know. I guess I guess Minnesota can, but we'll we'll find out. But I like I like that pick. I'm actually starting Kirk Cousins this week in fantasy. So right, well, I, I bench Tom Brady. Good luck with that pick. All right. With my pick, I uh, I actually had Detroit high on my big board as well, Jordan. I'm going to go with uh, the tried and true Jacksonville Jaguars plus mm. seven at the Chargers. Uh, quarterback is hurt Chargers. And I don't think that when we look at that Chargers team and our boy Austin Eckler, I don't think they should be seven point favorites. Now I'm not going to get the three point max here. If the Jacksonville Jaguars, the Jags pull off the upset, I'm not going to get full three points because if it locks in at seven, we need it to get to seven and a half, right? In order for me to get the max three points. Correct. And we're going with these lines today. So, all right, well, I'm going to stick with the Jags plus seven at the Chargers, we're banged up, and Eckler, he hasn't looked great around the goal line, hasn't been getting the opportunities that he said he was going to get. He might have a bounce-back game, but I'm still thinking they're going to save him, put him on ice for the postseason run. So I'm going to go with the Jags, plus seven um, this coming weekend. And as for my second pick here on the turn, I'm going to go with the Dolphins, plus five and a half, at home, going against Buffalo. I think this offense is that good. Five and a half is a little too high for me, so I'm going to go with the Miami Dolphins at home. I struggled with that one. I wanted to pick it, and then Buffalo just looks so good, and that defense looks so good, and they can get pressure. I get the logic behind it, but are they sort of a mirage a little bit at 2-0? Or is Buffalo the, really the only dominant team in the league? I, I, I don't know. I have to admit, for the teams that have posted just runaway offensive performances, I am hesitant so far because I think while Buffalo may be the most complete and overall most dominant team, there are a couple of teams whose offenses are just scarily capable of throwing up 40 points. And I, I hesitate to disagree with a moderate or a low spread against those teams. So I worry about the same thing. Jordan, you're up. All right. For my second pick, I'm going to stick to some of the same logic we talked about earlier in the show and i'm going to take the the washington commanders oh. at home getting six and a half against the eagles we just talked about fading two and oh teams we've talked about sort of divisional matchups weird things can happen obviously this is the the great carson wentz revenge game here washington's moved the ball on offense uh both weeks and you know as good as we think the eagles look i think a division game here again i could see this being a field goal game either way so give me washington plus six and a half not a bad pick. We don't have any huge long shots, none eligible for that three-point boost. So Jacksonville's the longest. I was a little bit torn between that and, and the Colts, but I, I had to go with, you know, when, when you have a chance to pick Carson Wentz, how, how can you not? Were you the one that picked the Colts and, and Matt Ryan being, did I remember that? I think I had Matt Ryan as, a, as an underdog MVP pick. That's looking fantastic right now. So it sounds like you've bailed on that one already. I may have bailed on that one. The fact you didn't pick the Colts, it was ripe for you to take the Colts as the yeah. fifth pick in this draft. You still are staying away from the Colts. You're burnt. We should set up a prop bet for how many, how many more yards will Lamar Jackson have than Matt Ryan at the end of the year. <laughs> Will it be 2,000 more yards? Maybe 1,000 more yards? I, I don't know. Jordan, what are you giving as the over-under on that gap right now? <laughs> we should do Lamar Jackson's rushing yards against <laughs> Matt Ryan's passing. That, that would be awesome. All right, what do you got, Peter? I'm going to wrap this up with, there's only a few teams left to pick. Yeah, you got three possible picks. But I think one of them is a pretty fine pick, which is the Pittsburgh Steelers. Plus four and a half against mm-hmm. Cleveland. What? The over-under on this game is 38 and a half. They're going to have 20 mile an hour wins. It's going to rain. These teams always play each other close. Najee Harris is still alive and, and is, he? is well, is he? as far as we can tell. He is healthy. So what gives? I mean, this is going to be a close, nasty game with poor quarterback play. That makes it a, a, a slugfest, a 50-50 game. What more do you want to pick an underdog, especially 
one who's not, you know, you know, we're not talking six and a half, seven to seven and a half points. May, since our show drops on Fridays, can't you just do a little editing and just change Peter's pick to whichever team lost Thursday night? <laughs> or just make fun of him if if the Browns blow him out. Just add a line. Yeah, a little voiceover. It did not work. You lost. <laughs> yeah. This is what I don't understand. Like you're picking you're picking the Steelers here. And you're talking about how it's going to get really messy and it's going to be one on the ground. And on the other side, you got probably the best duo in the backfield with Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. And you're betting against that team? Well, to be specific, my other choices are going with an underdog against the Rams or against the Chiefs, right? Yeah, look, I think Pittsburgh has enough weapons that they can hang with a ground game. Yeah, what, what do you want me to say? They got a good kicker. <laughs> Enough of this pigskin nonsense, all right? I, I can feel the wind growing a bit chillier. I can feel the leaves starting to change. Wait, 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 wait. Before you go there, can I just ask you a quick question, Jordan? Didn't your guys' research say that teams from outside the top six in college football never make the championship? That was what our earlier research showed, right? I can smell the disgusting scent of a pumpkin spice latte. Before Jordan says something about the Yankees, I just want to point out that USC is ranked seventh oh, this week. Don't do it. So as the juggernaut I can hear Peter talking, as the juggernaut rolls on, they're still worthy of consideration as an underdog. There's no need to fear or quaver. Underdog is here to save her. Underdog. That's right. Right around the corner, it's playoff baseball, and. By the time this podcast drops, Aaron Judge, who's currently sitting at 60 home runs after a dramatic Yankee victory on a walk-off grand slam by John Carlos Danton last night. Judge may be at 65 by the time this, this, this drops. You never know. But here's the thing, guys. We hear this in every sport. We hear it in baseball a lot. How much does how you finish on the season matter? Wait just a second. Before we get off the subject that you brought up, Jordan, give us your opinion. If Aaron Judge hits 63 home runs, will he be the all-time home run champion? No, we're not doing this. This is not part of the show. I just want to make sure. I don't want to hear Jordan's take on. I don't even want to hear Jordan's take. I just want to make sure we have Jordan on record defining Aaron Jones as the plucky seven-foot tall. He's the running back for the Green Bay Packers. Yeah, that's Aaron Jones. What are you talking about? You said Aaron Jones. I said Aaron Judge, and I'm wondering if you are... (laughs) Baze, can you play this back? I just want to make sure we have Jordan on record defining Aaron Jones as the plucky seven-foot underdog from New York. Anyway, you hear about teams going in the postseason hot, going in cold, fading down the stretch. Does any of that matter? So, Tom, you wrote about this years ago, and then we updated your research. Tell us what you found initially, and then maybe we'll let Peter talk again and, and add to your research. So when I was a young, floppy-haired gent in the research room at ESPN, the the other campus, not the real cool campus, this was when I was at the Superior Building back at ESPN with no windows and it's just basically a warehouse. Um, I wrote a story for ESPN the magazine. I believe Chad Millman edited this story, um, or at least greenlit it. And it was basically, hey, last 10 games of the season – if you are really hot in those last 10 games, what happened after that? Did you win the World Series? Did you not? What if you were super cold? You lose seven or lose seven out of those 10 games. And then what do you go in? You go in freezing cold into the postseason. What happens? And what I did find is that all of those hot streaks, the sizzling teams that everyone wants to bet because they look great, are actually less likely to win the World Series than the teams that come in super cold. And there's a lot of reasons for that, I think, why those those hot streaks plays tricks on our mind about recency bias, confirmation bias. We remember the hot streaks, like the Colorado Rockies, I think in 2007, was it, um, that just went on an absolute tear and won the World Series. We remember those, but we don't remember the runs where I think the Yankees lost 14 of the last 18 games going into the postseason, and then they went on a run in the post in the in the World Series and won it all. So basically, my story in ESPN the magazine, the very first one that I wrote, was about how momentum is bullshit, to say it eloquently. Now I don't know if it's still bullshit. Is it a steaming pile of dung, or is it? Um, is it actually 
the myth is now the truth. What's what's the new data say? Yeah, so Peter and I picked up from where Tom left off with the past, you know, 10 to 12 years and and Peter, what'd be fun? Since we've had wildcard teams, 41 teams in the wildcard era have made the playoffs after finishing the regular season going 8 and 2 or better over their final 10 games. Simple criteria. Only five of them, five out of 41, have gone on to win it all. Twelve playoff teams went three and seven or worse in their final 10 games. And three of them, almost as many, won championships. This is, this is really wild. The correlation between the records teams have in their final 10 games and their postseason wins is 0.12. Which means there's, it's pretty much random. It's almost random. Yeah, correlation goes from negative one, which is perfectly inverse, like the higher I go, the lower you go, all the way up through zero, which means no relationship at all between two things, to one, which is a perfect correlation. And this was 0.12. 0.12. And the correlation between team records in September and regular season October, you put them together, those games and the number of postseason wins is 0.05, essentially... <laughs> zero. There is no relationship between how teams finish the season and how well they then go on to perform in the postseason. It is. It is hard to think like. It's hard to accept that because we do. We do remember teams like the Braves, the Braves last year, right? They re essentially remade their team on the fly. They won nine out of their last 10 games in, in the regular season. Nobody saw them coming. They went on to win the World Series. We tend, those kinds of teams tend to stick in our minds, but they don't represent what actually happens overall. Right. And in fact, in this, in this period, we started in 2010, right, Peter? In this, yeah. in this period, we looked at the 10 best September slash October regular season records we found. None of those teams won a World Series. Two lost in the World Series, but then it's just a mix. You know, teams that lost in the division. You had a, the 2013 Indians had the second best record of that whole group. They lost in the wild card and so forth. Then if you look at the teams with the worst September-October record, you had a World Series winner in there. You had the 2015 Royals, and you've got teams that made it to the ALCS, made it to the NLCS. The 2017 Dodgers had the second worst September-October record in that group. They lost in the World Series. So even if you go to the extremes of these, of these situations, you're still finding that teams had any kind of uh, – sorry. If you go to the extremes, you're finding that teams – had no rhyme or reason to how they, they did in, in the postseason. And look, year in, year out now, because we have wildcard teams, you'll see teams that go 88 and 74 or 89 and 73. They might win a wildcard game. They might lose a wildcard game. Teams now shepherd their aces to pitch in that first wildcard game if they have to. So those teams with those aces, if they do win – don't have those aces for the next series. You'll also see them beat or lose to teams that win 94 or 98 games. There just isn't that big enough of a difference between a 95-win team and an 88-win team to expect anything different. I mean, if you step back and think about it, we got more teams playing. It's easier for any team to get knocked off. So this really, I think, should make us appreciate teams that make it to the postseason and stop this, you know, Stop this incessant demand for winning championships. There just is no way to guarantee that you're going to win once you get to the postseason. So I guess the the takeaway here is, yes, it is pretty much random. So don't fall prey to the confirmation or the recency bias of like picking the hot team. It, it might actually be that the coldest team wins the World Series this year. You shouldn't be surprised by that. So um, I guess there's a lot of reasons for this, the randomness, right? That there is no momentum or statistically, it seems like a mirage. Um, resting starters right down the stretch. You see uh, Gonsolin for the for the Dodgers. He's he's being rested. They're working him back from a forearm injury, which is really scary. But who knows? Maybe you know, they turn it on and he becomes an ace again and they're going to be fine. The other thing is, um, resting guys in the, in the, in the order, just like, Hey, we're going to take you out. You know, you had two at bats. We're going to just rest you for the rest of the game. And maybe they're not putting all their cards on the table, just strategically, strategically, um, in that final month, they're just kind of taking a seat back. So I guess like right now, as we speak, the Philadelphia Phillies, have lost five games straight and they're still projected to make the playoffs. So that's a team that like 
I actually might bet on going into the postseason if they make it, if they continue to slide, um, not play great baseball. I, I just think you shouldn't hate or fade on the cold teams and don't get too indulgent on the teams that are doing really well. Right now, it's the Mets. The Mets are on a six-game win streak. Let's see what happens going forward. But if that continues, I still don't see the Mets getting there at the end. And I think the most interesting thing you said was the last 10 games, I, I didn't expect to see anything, any kind of correlation to the last 10 because of all the reasons you said. The best teams often aren't even playing their best players in the last 10 games. I was more – to me, the September-October record, a larger sample, larger time period, I was, I was curious whether that mattered. It obviously doesn't. But I, I, you know, it also makes me want, wonder, well, is there anything that is a harbinger to playoff success? Like if we looked at pitching over the last month – is there such a thing as hot pitching? I think we can all agree that hitting is just, you know, it's a series of streaks one way or another, and there's really no way to go in to any kind of a series with hitting momentum. But I do wonder if uh, maybe we can look this up uh, for next week. If, if a pitcher's, you know, found his, his stuff in September and October, if that matters going into the playoffs. Well, you know, a lot of this gets circular, and it would be interesting to study, but because of what you and Tom are saying – the things to look at, to isolate, to see if they matter, have to do with how teams are deploying their resources in a pennant race, right? And so you want to see, you want to specify somehow. You want to get in and find out which teams had something to fight for. So they used their best players, but they didn't exhaust them, right? And somehow those will be the teams that go on to win, except those aren't always the best teams overall. So that momentum kind of gets lost in the wash when you're looking at yeah. quality. Right now, do the Astros have a six-man, a seven-man, a five-man, an eight-man rotation? Who the hell knows? They're playing whoever they want to try to start start seeing who they want to play in the playoffs. They've been doing this for a month because their lead is so big. They're going to win 106, 10, whatever games anyway. That quality is what's going to matter no matter how much they tinker for 10 games or a month. And you know, it's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, teams that are fighting for a spot will use their best players. Does that necessarily mean those best players will to continue to perform in the postseason? So it's actually a hard thing to study beyond beyond the records because you have to get kind of figure out what teams are trying to do and whether it succeeds. Well, I guess one other thing I wanted to say about this, and we'll move on to more important matters, rosy things that we can talk about. There's nothing more important than whether the Mets are going to win in the postseason. One thing I thought about is those cold teams that we talked about, that pile of frigid cold teams that are stumbling to the finish line of the regular season and getting into October. Don't you have to be so good that you still make the playoffs after being bad in the fat final 10 games or in the final month of the season. So it's almost baked in that you are a juggernaut. You know, if you're making the playoffs, despite being terrible down the stretch, it almost kind of makes you more likely in my head to win the world series. Cause you're just, you're lapping the field enough that you can still fall on your ass in the last stretch and make the playoffs. It just makes me think those teams are more interesting. One interesting thing about that is, is that what you said obviously applies to the 2000 Yankees, which you brought up before, which are probably the, the best example of a team that stumbled all the way through September. And I don't think it was because they were resting a lot of guys. They just didn't play well, but then they turned around and won another World Series. But here's something interesting. There are hardly any teams that have gone three and seven or worse in the two wild card era team, the past 10 years. There are very few teams that have finished the season poorly and then actually made the playoffs. And none have won the World Series, whereas your research showed from, I guess, from 95 to 2010, three had won the World Series. I think there probably is, a, and figure out how to study this, but this is interesting, I think there probably is a greater competitiveness at the kind of very good level, right? Teams that could win between 85 or let's say 90-something games, they, they want to maximize their wins really badly because now they can make the postseason, right? So those teams are doing everything they can to try to not play poorly at the end of the year. So that's kind of interesting because then you get those teams into the postseason. They make things a lot more interesting. I, I, think, that, um, I think there's probably a lot less poor play by contenders at the end of the season 
because of that. One other thing is the best teams are just winning a lot more games right now over the past three or five years than almost any time in baseball history. So yeah, if it's if a team like the Dodgers or the Astros winning 105 games every year, going seven and three or eight and two or nine and one at the end of the year really isn't that crazy. And they're almost never going to go two and eight or three and seven over a stretch at all. Even if they're playing their backups, they probably won't. It is going to be cool, by the way, to see starting with this year, this new playoff format and what the effect of, you know, playing a a three-game series has on, you know, resources, starting pitching in particular, and how much better those one and two seeds come out of it now. But uh, guys, before we go, last night was something. (laughs) It was something. Oh, my God. It was the Bachelorette finale. I'm still not sure what I watched. I'm still not sure what was scripted and what wasn't. I'm still not sure if I can eat today. Help me make sense of this. Who did Tino call in the backyard? <laughs> I thought he was talking to one of the producers, no? Oh, he was on the phone. He was on oh. the phone, shirt, unbuttoned his shirt, and she comes out to con- confront him, and he's on the phone and like looks – he's smiling. He's smiling, and that has to be the girl. That has to be the mistress. So did you think that he was gaslighting her, she was gaslighting him, or they were both gaslighting each other? Wait, wait a minute. How could that be the other woman? That would be the most spectacularly poorly timed phone call in like TV history. That I'm is- single, baby. We're over. I'm We're out. over. Wow. I'm out. I'm out. Here to deliver the good news, sweetie. We can we can do this for real. I don't. We don't have to dance around this. And it's not a tiny hookup anymore. Yeah. Not a tiny mistake. This is a big one. That's some poor impulse control. Answer my question because my wife and I were discussing this while watching the show last night because she thinks Rachel is like legit crazy. Again, so the the question is, was she gaslighting him? Was he gaslighting her, or were they both gaslighting each other? What was she gaslighting him about? Yeah, she was like constantly changing the terms of the conversation and then like she wants to know why it happened and then he tries to explain she's like you're blaming it on me and he's like well no i'm just trying to explain to you what i was thinking and then yeah yeah right she kept like moving the goalposts, and it was very clear that he at one point he had like no idea what she was talking about again he seems like a total tool also and to cheat on her is totally unacceptable but i don't like the the, the easy narrative and that abc has to protect its its cast members is to make him the bad guy and make her, you know, the strong woman who persevered. I think she sucks too. All right. So I say that when you look at that situation, there was a little bit of like a gap of information that is not going to be made public that they, they talked about something. Yeah. Like what the hell did when she like, do you want to get into what we talked about? And he's like, what does he have a small animal growing in his chest? Like what, what was this private matter? A small animal growing in his chest would be the bizarre secret that the show was hiding in those last words. (laughs) The logistics of this entire season, the logistics and the editing, the jumping from, I mean, it's been a one, three month long non sequitur. I mean, somebody has COVID, so they talk about (laughs) it to some of the cast, but not the others. There are people wandering around alone on cruise ships. Um, I am trying to figure out, it's now clear that Zach pursued a successful underdog strategy of (laughs) self-eliminating so that he could be the next Bachelor. But if that's not something that Rachel knew about, because I I still don't understand why they broke up. I don't understand the information that was presented to me on the screen. It was not enough to draw logical conclusions. Yes, something happened. We don't know what it is, except maybe he wanted to leave because they told him he could be the Bachelor. But I think if... Rachel is anywhere near as unaware of what was going on with the guys as we were watching, right? If she wasn't privy to some of the information that nobody's ever shared with us as viewers, and she's half as confused as I am, then I don't blame her at all for being ticked off and and accelerating the confusion because I didn't know what the hell was happening. I, I, I still don't, except that Zach is the next Bachelor, and that's going to give me another couple of extra weeks of free time over the next you know, season because oh, what a boring season that's going to be. Yeah, that's bedtime, eight thirty p.m. I mean, that's just. I mean, that guy could barely form a sentence when the girls came out at the end of the show yesterday. 
Holy cow. Well, he couldn't he couldn't name any of the women <laughs> he had just met and one of them barely gave yeah. him a gave him a mnemonic device. And he said, thought her name was Balin. And is Balin, that even a name? Yeah. Yeah. Balin? It is. It is, but it's not former professor of history Bernard Balin. It was Bailey. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm sorry, Maze. I didn't mean to scream into the microphone, but I mean <laughs> How about he he batted zero on their name? I don't know. The <laughs> nerves. I mean, when you meet people, do you remember their names when you meet them at cocktail parties or do you oh, just Okay, Tomb. I guess you're right. You're right. If your one job was to date these five women <laughs> on national television. The one thing I would be saying is Brianna. 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 <laughs> Pick the one you like and remember her name at least. What a doofus. Okay. Well, I want to go back to something real quick. Did our esteemed guest our bachelor, bachelorette expert, were there any takeaways from her data that bore fruit in this season? Because didn't Tina win the first rose? He got a first impression, yeah. First impression rose. Yeah, and that brings up an interesting fact, which is that the funnel really did narrow down when she said it would, which is when they began to travel, right? Around week four or five. And the first impression rose seemed to have a lasting, like like preseason college football polls had more significance than you might uh, than you might think. But you know the producers know this stuff too, and they try to stay a step or two ahead of it. And they they you know if a trend becomes too likely, they're bound to try to you know mess with it or mix it up. Literally, the only intelligent thing that was said last night was actually in the text messages that uh, that Eric had with the other girl, where he said. <laughs> what do they say? None of this is real anyway, <laughs> or something like that. And he's like, oh, yeah, I didn't mean it. Now it's the most real thing in the world. No, no, none of it's real. For those of us who placed a lot of hope in the franchise after Michelle and Nate's season, this was this was as big a disaster of programming as, as I've seen in a, in a long time. This is like vapid people. Conf- massively confusing edits and and kind of all of them crashing together and kind of like a brownian motion of poor planning and poor results and I mean what do you what do you make of any of this I don't know about you guys but I was supremely uncomfortable by the roman esque like shaming of Tino on live television and having him watch Avon come in, it felt supremely cruel and felt wholly dirty watching this thing. Well, what did you text us? This is some WWE shit, right? Yeah, this is some WWE yeah. shit, right? That's what yeah. I said. And the Avon coming out, like, oh my God, is that Avon's music? Oh my God. Right. Like that whole the thing. The stare down. The stare down. Yeah, it was, it was kind of like... It was amazing television, but I also recognize like I'm defending the the uh, the predator here who was the guy who cheated on her. And now I'm kind of like feeling bad for him. And that is a very conflicting emotion. But it did feel incredibly like, I don't know, gladiator type. We're just going to watch this guy get ripped to shreds. It's a freeing thing when you don't when you just say they all suck. And there, and and then don't look at it as defending um, Tino, but just also ripping Rachel and Avon. They all suck, so you owe no one anything, no owe no one any positive thoughts. I think it's ridiculous that she's supposedly in love with him, and it's like he broke her heart. Oh, now I'm going to go off and 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 I'm totally fine. Let's go out, Avon. And then this guy's like, well. The only mature thing that was said the whole season was when I said, you know, I want to date you. I'm not ready yeah. for an engagement. And of course, she's like, I want to be engaged. Yeah, but like, that was that was right? bad. And now he's back. He's like, still want to date. But it's like, sure, second choice. I'm happy to like, forget it. This is all ridiculous. It's staged. I don't believe any of these people even knows what they want. Gross. I'm not giving into that complete nihilism. I don't because I don't think it was I don't think it was great TV. Like on Bachelor in Paradise as loony as it is, there's cruelty and there are confrontations and there, but sometimes they just like, they pop up. Sometimes people get irritated with each other, want to fight each other or want to steal men or women from each other. Sometimes you can just see in their behavior and their reactions that it's, 
kind of spontaneous and kind of genuine. Nothing about that showdown last night. That was just, it was gratuitous cruelty and gratuitously staged confrontation. And just, I mean, this, this attempt to, to, you know, have that cockfight was just a big fail. We won't be seeing the double bachelor bachelorette. I don't think anytime soon. Poor Jesse Palmer having to navigate that whole thing because it was, it was brutal. And then him saying, wow, this is awkward, huh? Tino, what's standing out here? You and me. Wow. Let's move on from that. It was a season to forget, but on this, on this podcast, lots of stuff to get into for next year. But another podcast to remember. Thank you, Mays, for another bang up job editing. We will see you guys next week. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.